Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, we get to start on a new ministry year. It's great to start that with worshiping together, praying together. We're going to spend some time strategizing together a little bit later. Luke will lead us through that, um, how we're going to actually engage ministry this year. But before we dive into those more fine-grained details, I'd like to have us drop back a little bit and remind us of the big picture. The big picture of why ministry is necessary the big picture of what ministry calls for from us and of the resources that we have to give what it requires. Now, I, I should say fair warning here. When Luke asked me how much time I thought I would take, I said, I don't know, like what, hour and a half? And, and Luke responded, how about 30 minutes? Um, I, I was joking, Luke was not. We we're gonna be a lot closer to Luke's estimate than my own. But you need to know this morning that I'm coming with a bit of a burden for today. And I'm coming with a bit of a burden for what I want to share. And it's a burden that I've had for many years now. It's also a burden that continues to build the older I get and the more time that I experience on this earth. And it's been building over this past year as I think about our country, as I think about the broader church in America, and especially as I think about the challenges that I anticipate are on the horizon for the church not speaking just of Renewal Mainline, but church in general. And what I want to do this morning is to share that burden with you. And my hope uh, is that you would feel its weightiness, um, but that you would do more than feel the weightiness, that you would actually adopt that weightiness as your own. Um, so what am I urging? I'm urging, get your coffee, strap in, buckle up, here we go. Um, I hope you have your Bible with you. I hope you have some way of taking notes because there's a lot that I want to share. You all know that I talk way too fast. You're not going to remember everything. Um, trying to record this so that we can put this on the podcast so that you can listen to it again. I'm going to urge you to spend some time uh, talking about it with other people. But I think there is something really important for us as we think about what Jesus is doing through his church on this earth. Now, to set this up this morning, I want to read from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. This is a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples. It comes very early on in the book of Matthew. It's right after he called his disciples, and it's right at the start of his ministry. And the purpose of this sermon that Jesus gave is to orient his guys to what he's doing, and it's to orient them to their part in it. Sermon runs several chapters. We're just going to look at the opening portion of it. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 16. Seeing the crowds... He, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Our primary focus this morning is on verses 13 to 16, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And as we unpack what he's saying, we're going to see three different things. I've put it in three to help orient us through this this morning. Three things that help orient us to this ministry year. So these verses show us, number one, the necessity of ministry. It shows us the agents of ministry. And thirdly, it shows us the imperatives of ministry. So the necessity of ministry, the agents of ministry, and the imperatives of ministry. First, the necessity. When Jesus tells his disciples that they are salt and light, he's making an assumption. He's assuming that this world does not have what it needs that there is a deep lack in this world that it cannot satisfy on its own, but that it needs to have something added to it. It has to have salt and light. Now, what was he trying to convey by those two illustrations? Salt in this context is a preservative. So in a pre-refrigeration world, it was used to keep foods from rotting. When Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling them, you are the preservative of the earth. You are what keeps it from rotting and spoiling. Now, make sure that you hear his assumption. He assumes that on, his, uh, that on its own, this world is decaying. And it's not a running down of energy and losing energy, sort of like Adams would or, or something like that. This is a decay that's putrid. There's a corruption that comes from inside of it that it's powerless to stop. He's talking about the kind of decay that happens if you leave meat out on the counter for a week. From Jesus's perspective, at the core of this world is an internal corrosive rot that has to have a preservative element added to it so that it doesn't destroy itself. It needs the salt of his disciples. It needs the salt of his disciples and it needs the light of his disciples. And again, you realize that there's an assumption here. By calling his disciples the light of the world, he's saying that the world itself is not light. His assumption is that the world is dark, that it has no light of its own, that light does not come from within it, but light has to be introduced from outside of it. Now, clearly here, he's not talking about physical light, just as earlier he wasn't talking about physical rot. What's he doing? He's juxtaposing two spiritual realities. He's saying there is a spiritual reality here on this earth that it is rotting and benighted, and there is a spiritual reality that his disciples are part of, one that has the resources to preserve and enlighten this otherwise rotting dark world. So when you think of light here, you have to think multidimensional. Is it knowledge? Well, yes. Is it understanding, more like wisdom? Yes. Is it goodness, charity, mercy? And again, all of those are yes. Is it justice? Is it holiness? Is it righteousness? Again, it's all of those things. It's all of the things that reflect God and his original intention for this world. It's everything that this world needs since it's been corrupted and darkened by evil. 
Now I need to add a little caveat here because Jesus is not saying that people are as fully and deeply wicked as they could be. He's not denying here or in the other parts of what he talks about throughout the gospels. He's not denying that God's image still shines through people. He's not denying that people can do incredible things like explore creation, that they can build cities, that they can develop art, that they can develop literature, that they can invest themselves in people helping disciplines like medicine, engineering, social work. He's not denying any of that. When Jesus assumes that the world is rotting and dark, he means this world does not have the resources within it to halt the corroding power of sin, and it doesn't have the power to actually reveal the glory of God. That there's nothing inherent within this world that will keep humanity from decaying and nothing within humanity that can get us back to God. Nothing that can guide our cities, that can guide our art, guide our literature, guide our medicine, guide our engineering, guide our social work into God-honoring kinds of things. Things that would actually fill his purposes. What he's saying is that without salt and light, all of those things will be distorted. Let me give you an example of this. A story that most all of you are familiar with, I believe. Back in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, what do you learn there? You learn that people are extremely gifted. That even after the fall, they've not lost the image of God in which they were created. And so what can they do? They can build a city. They can build a society. They can build a culture. But we also learn that after the fall, after evil enters into this world, that they don't use their gifts to carry out God's agenda. Instead, they use their gifts in the service of evil. Remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, God's plan for humanity was that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would spread out across the earth, that they would fill it with the knowledge of the glory of God. In Genesis 11, you read that the human race rejects that calling. And so they say to each other, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so what they did was they took all of the gifts that God gave them and misused them. Instead of spreading across the earth, they clumped together in one place. Earth was no longer enough for them. They set their sights on raising themselves up to heaven. Instead of making God's name great, they wanted to make a name for themselves. So it's not that they didn't have any gifts. It's that they misused their gifts. That's what Jesus is getting at, that their internal compass is broken. And so instead of pointing their gifts in a Godward direction, those gifts now get pointed in a God-hating direction. That's what Jesus means when he says the world is rotting and in darkness. And without help, that's our destiny as human beings. We are doomed to fall always further than we already have, both as individuals and as societies. On our own, we can't help it. We can't reverse it. We need something. We need salt and light that Jesus sends. And I share that because that's sobering. And I want that to sink in, not only to my heart, but to all of our hearts. From Jesus's perspective, when you look at the world the way that Jesus does, there is no hope for anyone in this world to get better unless they get help from outside of this world. It's sobering. If you think that Jesus was a nice teacher who said nice things, you haven't understood some of what he's taught. This is sobering, but it's also glorious because Jesus actually says it and we actually hear it. That means what? He didn't leave us to ourselves. 
Instead, Jesus entered into this world. He knew what it was, and he didn't recoil from it. He entered into it, and he wasn't worried that it was going to corrupt him or darken him. Instead, he entered into it, and he entered with a plan that he was actually going to infect it with health and that he was going to infect it with his light. You think about light and darkness. Wonderful metaphor here. You realize that they can't exist together, that one has to give way to the other, and that it's always darkness that gives way to light. We live in a world that communicates evil is strong. It's not stronger than holiness. Darkness is not stronger than light. Goodness is stronger than wickedness. Now, goodness may sacrifice itself, but it doesn't do that because it's weak. That's what you learn when you look at the cross. You learn that goodness does sacrifice itself, but it does that because it's strong. So Jesus entered this world with a plan. He brought his light into it, and he started infecting people with that light. The disciples are the first ones. And his plan that once infected, they would then become carriers of light into the world. They would be his agents of light in this world. In other words, as you think about this, you realize Jesus is not simply the creator of the world. He's the lover of the world. He's the lover who entered into it because of his desire to preserve it against rot and because he wanted to bring the light of God's glory into it that it lost. He doesn't hate the world. He longs to rescue it. Yes, the reality of the world is that it's dark. The plan of God, however, is to do something to relieve that darkness. That's what ministry is all about. We have to think like that. We have to think about this larger world. Ministry is not about creating a comfortable world for ourselves. It's not first and foremost about creating a community that we enjoy. We do get to enjoy it, but that's not what it's first and foremost about. It, 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 we're not trying to create a place where we feel safe, where our relational needs are met as though that was the end all, where we can be with people who like us, who look like us, who think like us. Ministry is about creating a community a good one that we do like, but more importantly, that community is to do what? It's to stand out like a city on a hill. It's to be incredibly visible because its differences from the world are not merely social. And so its differences are to stand out like a source of light that says to everybody around us, this is what it's like to be brought back into a relationship with the God who made you. Look at what it does. Aren't his ways good? Aren't his ways just? Aren't they beneficial? Isn't this something that you would like for yourself? Don't you want a marriage that's a full partnership where mutual respect and love flow, where each one is better because of the influence of the other than either person would be on their own? Or don't you want to raise children this way, not crushing them, not spoiling them, not trying to live vicariously through them, not ignoring them, but enjoying and empowering them so that they take their place in society so that you and other people actually want to be around them. Don't, don't you want that? Don't you want to be with people who do meaningful things with their lives? People who are thoughtful, people who are interesting, but people who are not full of themselves, who can share their lives, but they don't have to remind you how important they are, who are big enough, they're actually interested in other people. Don't you want to be part of a community that values differences, that learns from them, that grows from them, rather than rips each other apart over them? And don't you want to be part of a community that works for the good of others?
that cares about those who are less well off and cares about those who cannot defend themselves? Don't you want to be part of a community that exists in part to make other people's lives better, especially those who cannot make their own better? Don't, don't you want to be part of that? That's what the city on a hill is supposed to communicate. That's the purpose of ministry. It's about taking the light that we've been given, not that we came with on our own, taking that light and creating something beautiful with it in a dark world that other people can enjoy. Something that points beyond the city itself to the God who's the source of all light and goodness. Now, Jesus preached this 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I think you could argue, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, this is what the world has always needed. And it's especially what the U.S. needs right now. I want to be careful how I say this next piece. I'm deeply concerned about our society, about where we are on many different levels, but I'm very concerned with the way that we express that in our country. In our present news, in our present social analysis, every one time that you hear of something, it comes with an intention of hooking you emotionally. And it tries to hook you emotionally and then to move you through either anger or fear. And it really doesn't matter which news feed that you're tuned into. I, I get a variety. But most every article leaves you feeling angry by what you're reading or scared. They all hook you emotionally. They all pander to a certain support base. And I don't want to do that this morning. Why? That's not what salt and light is. Salt and light is about introducing wholeness and goodness into a world that needs it. Not about taking evil and unrest and cranking them up. So with that caveat in place, I want to say this as matter-of-factly as I can. We don't live in a healthy society. We live in a country right now that is ripping itself apart. You all know this. Just a couple examples. We live in a country where the social inequities between the haves and the have-nots is increasing regardless of what measure you use. We live in a country where our differences, especially our political and our ethnic differences, are not cause for celebration. They're not cause for mutual learning, understanding, maturing. They're cause for distrust, tribalism. We live in a country where the moral and sexual revolution is pushing the boundaries faster and faster, faster than you can actually keep up with. We live in a country where the church is coming under greater pressure to conform to the morals of our society. Country where even recently at the Supreme Court level, religious rights that are written into our constitution are passed over and ruled against. We live in a place where people have come to believe that a separation of church and state means that the church has no business being in the public sphere and needs to keep its nose out. And we live in a country where all of the solutions tend to force people into polarized camps. Solutions that create us who must defeat them because we live now in a world where winner takes all. It's a, comp a competitive world, not a cooperative world. It's a world that needs salt and light because it doesn't have it within itself. And so ministry is necessary, not necessary to give ourselves a comfortable life that we enjoy, but ne necessary to help the larger world, to create a community that is both visibly different from the larger world and visible to the larger world, a community that gives light to those who live in darkness. Okay, that's point one. Ministry is necessary because of the true condition of this world. Point two, and, and, and this is frustrating to me, I want us to be in the same room together, I want us to be able to dialogue, to interact, to, to, and we can't do that. 
So we're going to do the next best thing. And I'm going to invite you, please reach out, email me, call me. Love to be able to dialogue more about these things. Point two, since ministry is necessary, who are the agents of ministry? Who are these salt and light carriers? It's the disciples. That's who Jesus is talking to when he says, you are salt, you are light. He looks at these guys and he says, you are the change agents in this world. You're the ones who carry forward the kingdom. He said that <laughs> to this ragtag group of guys, each of whom have their own personal issues. And when you lump them all together, they are anything but a united world-changing power. So why pick them? It's because the kingdom of God does not move forward like the kingdoms of this world. And it doesn't operate under the same principles. That's what Jesus established when he starts the sermon by saying, here are your defining characteristics. Who are you? You are blessed for things like being poor in spirit, for mourning, for being meek, for being merciful, for being pure in heart. Jesus just said, in my kingdom, it's not the strong who survive. It's not the beautiful who are lauded. It's not the wealthy who are influential. Rather, in my kingdom, it's the humble, the merciful, the peacemakers, not the war makers. It's the ones who are driven by a passion for righteousness. Those are the ones who are blessed. And it's those who have a saving influence on the world around them. It's those people who have a saving influence on the strong, on the beautiful, on the wealthy, on the influential. You are the ones who will change the world. <laughs> and I cannot imagine that anybody sitting there that day saw that coming. Not the disciples, certainly not the rest of the world. That's not how they viewed those guys. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. For several decades now, the Gallup poll has asked people, how much confidence do you have in religion? Now, back in the early 1970s, about 68% of Americans said that they had a great deal of confidence or quite a lot of confidence in organized religion. As of last year, 2019, the number was down to 36%. From almost 70 down to 36%, the number is almost cut in half. Barely little more than a third of Americans have confidence in religion of any kind. They are not expecting very much from us. And frankly, you can understand why they have so little confidence, given the way that the church has responded to the world. Go back into the early 1900s. The church in the U.S. got very comfortable. We were comfortable as a social power, a cultural influencer. We were comfortable as a respected institution. Toward the latter half of the century, the pace of secularization increased. What do I mean by secularization? It's the belief that we can build morality on human reason alone, that we don't need to appeal to transcendent values or transcendent principles for morality. And as that belief has taken greater hold in our institutions, educational, legal, civic, as it's taken greater hold there, faith has been increasingly squeezed out of public settings, confined more and more to private ones. And as those secularizing forces have continued, having greater impact on American culture, the church has found herself increasingly pushed to the margins of society. Pushed to the margins and frankly has not handled that push very well. 
three ways that, that she tends to respond to this marginalization. And these ways are not necessarily in order. But one approach is, well, let's just make peace morally with the world. Let's adopt the values of the world and adjust our commitments and beliefs so that we are relevant to the larger world. We'll take on their values. Church makes peace with the world. To borrow another one of Jesus's way of speaking, she becomes of the world, like the world. And therefore, she has nothing to say to the world because there's a little difference between her and the world. It's just another social organization. That's one option, make peace with the world. Second option, the church has made war against the world. But in doing that, she tends to adopt the power of the world to fight the world. So in the U.S., it means that she attempts to be politically strong, that she attempts to become a voting block. Speaking very frankly, that's another way of becoming of the world, taking on their approach to these issues. So at times the church compromises, makes peace with the world. At other times she makes war against the world. Or third option, she hunkers down. She becomes this island, this outpost of like-minded people, like-minded people who are upset by what's going on in the larger world, but who have no influence on the larger world society because they've withdrawn from society. So again, thinking here like Jesus does in, in John 17, she becomes not of the world, okay, that's good, but she's no longer in the world. And against all three of those options that do not have the goods of society at heart, Jesus says, here's a better one. Be in the world, but not of it. Let your light shine before others. The light that you did not get from the world, but the light that this world really needs. But that comes with a cost. Jesus promises, verse 11, that if you are going to be his disciples and if you're going to carry out this kind of mission, that you will be reviled, persecuted, and lied about. You think, okay, uh, why? <laughs> why would Jesus do this? Why would he throw us into the middle of rottenness and darkness to say and do things that are going to get us insulted, persecuted, and lied about? It's because he loves what he made. You have to keep reminding yourself of that. Christianity does not move you away from people. It moves you toward them. And it moves you toward them because you know what it's like to have God move toward you. The ugliness of our world sickens our God, but it also moves him with compassion. And it moves him in a way that our world just does not move when it is sickened. What does our world do when it's sickened? It bullies people. We cancel each other. We threaten each other. We're violent toward each other. We treat some people like their lives are worth less than others, including tens of millions of our own babies. And Jesus responds, how? By entering into that mess to shine his light into darkness. Really amazing. I, I, I recently read, I can't remember where, Somebody was talking about how the universe is like a speck of lint on the back of the Almighty's hand. That's really how little we are in comparison to how great he is. And yet God cares for the universe. He wants to preserve it. He wants to bring light to it. And so, yes, Jesus sends his disciples into it, knowing that they'll be persecuted and mistreated. But he only sends them after God sent him. So as much as you and I might be persecuted, you have to remember that it's really Jesus who is the persecuted one, who is willing to be persecuted for your sake because he loves you, 
because he wanted to preserve your life and wanted to give you his light. And so now you and I respond, not trying to pay him back, not because Jesus did wonderful things for me and now I'm in his debt. Okay, that's not the gospel. The gospel is different. The gospel sounds like this. Jesus was persecuted for me. And because he was, I'm no longer what I was. I'm no longer the rotting, benighted thing that I was. I'm now transformed. Now I'm like him. And because I'm like him, I love the things that he loves, and I do the things that he does, even if I'm mistreated like he was. And so now I agree with him. When he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, I say, yes, that's right. Those are the ones who are blessed. Church, renewal. We have to recover an expectation that the larger world is not going to like us. We have to stop living as though we can make them happy with us that we can do enough things, say the right things so that they think we're good guys. That is not our mission. Jesus was really clear on the night that he was arrested. He told his disciples, John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Renewal, we have to expect not to be liked. But when the world doesn't like us, it should make us that much more aware of how much they need us of how much they need the salt and light that God has made us. Because you really are rotten. You're really blind if you hate someone who wants something better for you. So when we're insulted, when we're persecuted, when we're lied about, that has to give us greater incentive to be salt and light. Because if we refuse to give to others what we've been given, they're going to rot even more as they grow up around in the darkness. So here's my call to us. Here's the reality, Renewal. You will not be liked. Here are your marching orders. Be salt and light anyway. Why? Because you're what the world needs so that it does not destroy itself. Not because you're so great and wonderful in yourself, but because of what Jesus gave you. So first, ministry is necessary because of the condition of the world. Second, you are the agents of ministry that Jesus is sending into the world. Now, thirdly, what are the imperatives of this ministry? What are the two things that we have to do in order to carry this out? Let me say it first negatively and then positively. Negatively, do not lose your saltiness. Do not lose your ability to preserve this world against rot and de decay. Because, verse 13, salt that has lost its taste is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What's this mean? Well, run with the metaphor a bit. It means you can't let the rod of the world infect you. It means that you can't let the darkness of the world def define and interpret what light means. Watched a sermon recently that broke my heart. You, you may have heard of this. Uh, a male pastor in Canada was teaching on the pearl of great price. It's one of Jesus' parables. It's about a pearl merchant who finds a pearl of such great value that he sells everything that he has in order to have it. The message that this pastor preached focused a lot of attention on needing to speak your truth. Talked about the value of speaking your truth, quote, regardless of how much trouble it gets you into, whatever it costs you. And he spoke about the danger of not speaking your truth, even if it costs you everything. 
And as the pastor wound down his message, he shared the truth that he equated with his treasure. This may be a little shocking to some of you, that God had not only called him to be a pastor, but God had also called him to be a woman. And he said, quote, that's the treasure. That's the truth I have to speak. And he urged his listeners, quote, to find your pearl to become the person you were meant to be. Now, please hear me. I am not telling you this story to mock him. I'm not telling you this story to belittle him. I have deep sympathy for him. I have deep sympathy for anyone who feels that uncomfortable in their body. For anyone who feels like he does, that the church in general has just not been helpful to people who are struggling with their identity. I have deep sympathy for him. And at the same time, I have deep antipathy when God's word is distorted to serve a purpose counter to God's intention. You know what the pearl of great price is. It's about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says it is. It's about Jesus more specifically as he's the doorway into the kingdom. The pearl can in no way be construed to be about you. But that happens when you lose your saltiness, when you confuse light with darkness, when you're more influenced by your culture than you are by God's kingdom, when the values of your society become the lens through which you read the scripture instead of vice versa. And please understand, that doesn't only happen to preachers. It happens to all of God's people when we drink uncritically from our news feeds, from our social media accounts, from the entertainment industry. And by uncritically, I mean when we allow these cultural products, which I look at, think about, invest in, when we allow these cultural products to form our ways of thinking more than we're working to develop a biblical grid through which to engage those products. When you fail to think critically about what you're taking in, you will be shaped by those things. They will affect how you think about scripture and how you live your life. You'll lose your saltiness. Now, what does that mean? It, it means a lot of things that I don't have time for. This is not the hour and a half version of this talk. At the very least, it means what? It means you need your own time in scripture. Not because you have to in order to feel like a good person today, but because you want to hear what Christ has to say. There's no substitute for this. You have to be in scripture. It has to form the interpretive grid through which you think about all of life. You need to be more familiar with scripture than you are with culture. Second, it means that you have to discuss the sermons, discuss the teachings, discuss the things that you're reading that you get at church. And I don't mean discuss them like, with like um, well, I, I, I didn't like the wording. I didn't like the illustration. I didn't like the sound of his voice. Okay, those are not the important questions. You have to ask, did I hear the gospel? A friend of mine visited a church last summer with his family and became very aware that he heard nothing of the gospel during the message. So when he got back into the car with everyone, he led them in a discussion of where the gospel was missing, where it actually was in the passage, and how it then impacted the points of the message. That's what it means to be salt and light. He's being salt and light in his family. You need that same kind of intentionality with your friends and your family. And you need to bring that kind of intentionality, looking for the gospel when you're leading your CG, when you're guiding your team, when you're having conversations with our children, with our youth, with our students. If we don't have that 
overriding concern for the gospel, renewal mainline will lose its saltiness. So you need to be in scripture. You need to be thinking and looking for the gospel. And third, you have to study. You can't just scroll through life. Scrolling is easy. Studying is hard. But without studying, you're not going to know God's heart. and You won't know his mind. So you need to take the mental gifts that God has given you, and you need to use them to understand him and his world better. You need to be able to think biblically about something like speak your truth. You need to be able to have a sense of what do I do with that? How do I think about that? I, I'm going to take something that seems relatively trivial here. But you need to be able to hear that and think, okay, there's a goodness behind that intention, right? The goodness is some people have had their voices silenced. They've been marginalized way too often. They need to be encouraged to speak up and they need to say what they're thinking. You need to see the goodness behind that. You also have to see the error of it. You have to see the error that undermines it. You have to recognize there's an oxymoron here when you combine the words your and truth. Because when you do that, you now make truth subjective. Think, well, why is that a problem? Because speak your truth passes itself off as true, as something that is true, not for one, not for couple, but for everyone, something that ought to be done by everyone. It passes itself off as an objective truth. But on what basis does it do that? If there is your truth and my truth, truth is not objective. And so when I speak my truth, I'm not saying what is true. I'm saying what I feel or I'm saying what I like. But if, what if you feel and think that I should shut up, <laughs> that I should not speak at all? What if you're in a position of power and your truth is you decide to turn off my microphone, take away my ability to speak? Should you still be allowed to speak and act on your truth? Well, if not, why not? Whose truth wins over yours? Why should it? Do you see the problem? When you operate without a Christian worldview, you have no longer rationale for why everybody ought to be treated with dignity and everybody ought to be valued. Everybody ought to be able to express themselves because as God's images, we have intrinsic worth and value. As human beings, we are equally valuable. But equal worth does not make all of our thoughts equally valid. It's not unsafe to challenge someone's wrong thoughts. Instead, all of our thoughts have to be submitted to scripture and examined in light of scripture. And when we do, some of those are gonna be found to be not true. Some that we actually like are gonna be found to be not true. But when we find them to be untrue, then what, we have to stop speaking them. If you wanna be salt and light in this world, if you don't want to lose your saltiness, you have to learn to think carefully and biblically about all of life which is what? It's going to take a lot of work. You have to study. You have to study theology. You have to understand how God makes sense of all of life. And you have to study this world. You have to understand the thought patterns and the actions of the world where God has put you. And you have to study how God thinks and how his thoughts meet the needs of this age. Now, again, if I was doing the hour and a half version of this message, I would stop. I'd give you a whole set of resources. I can't if you're interested, please email me, uh, and I'll share some with you. That's the negative imperative for ministry. Don't lose your saltiness. The second, and I'm close to being done now, the second imperative is let your light shine before others. It comes out of verse 16. Let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are to take initiative. You're to do good works. You don't do them to prove that you're a good person. You don't do them so that everyone around you approves of what you're doing. That's what, that's just virtue signaling. Rather, you do good deeds so that others might see what you're doing and so that they might give glory to your Father who's in heaven, not that they would give glory to you. I was talking with a pastor in the city a few weeks back, very concerned about the impact, <clears throat> excuse me, the impact that the moral revolution is having on our young people. He told me that every family whose children are in public school have had their teenagers say to them, this church is not safe because of its biblical teaching on gender issues. Now, as an aside, that's the second church that I've heard in a month that's been accused of not being safe for related issues from kids. What I found encouraging was this pastor's stance. He wants his people to be so loving to outsiders that even though they hate what we believe and they hate what we teach, they hate what we're going to keep on teaching, they might hate all of that, but they'll be blown away by how much we love them. That's what Jesus is saying. That even though they persecute you, insult you, and lie about you, they should see something in your good works that causes them to give glory to God. Now, where are you supposed to do these? Where do you do good works? And what do you do? The answer is very simple. You do good works wherever you are. Again, think about Jesus's illustration. He says, verse 15, people light a lamp and they put it on a stand so that it gives light where? To all in the house. It doesn't shine light 3,000 miles away. That's somebody else's responsibility. Somebody else is calling from Christ. Instead, a lamp shines light where it's put. I was talking with a friend one time about social justice issues, about our need to take seriously the injustices where we are, even if we struggle to see what they are where we are. I think that's true of a lot of people. It's easy to see injustice somewhere else. It's really hard to see it where you live sometimes. He felt that. And at one point he picked an injustice that was just really clear and, 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 and because it was easy. And he said, yeah, I just wish I could have been a judge at Nuremberg. He's referring to the war criminals where they were tried after World War II by the Allies in 1945-46. I just wish I could have been a judge at Nuremberg. That was a time that was obvious to him, that in that place, in that time, there was a need for justice and for good works that would glorify God, and it would be very clear. And I said to him, as gently as I could, what you're wishing for is to be more sovereign than God. Because respectfully, that's not where God placed you in time and history. And so what you are actually wishing for is to live in a fantasy. But it's not a harmless fantasy. Because by indulging that fantasy, by spending time on it, you are not spending time thinking about, you're not spending time seeing the needs that are in front of you that God has given to you to care about. Instead, the fantasy is more engaging to you than the real life that you have. Again, I think that's true of all of us to the extent that we indulge our dreams of, if only I was in a different time or place, then I would do this or that. To the extent that we dream about those things, we will miss what's in front of us. Now, how do you avoid that? You have to see the daily events of your own social location as the primary opportunities to be salt and light. And so you need to ask questions like, did I engage in serving others when COVID hit? 
Or did I hunker down inside my house, hoping for it to just all go away? Did I reach out to my African-American friends, my urban and law enforcement friends following George Floyd's murder? Am I still reaching out to them? Do I still care? Do I see storm damage to my neighbors as an opportunity to be salt and light, to do good works, to care for them? Do I help my friends and neighbors who are wrestling with angst over where their kids are going to go for school this fall? Do, do, I, do I enter into that and attempt to be salt and light there? Do I see the daily events of my setting as opportunities for me to be salt and light? Or to put a fine point on it, am I sitting back waiting for someone else to do something? Am I waiting for the church to do something? Or am I being the church as I do something? Am I waiting for pastors and elders and deacons and leaders and CG leaders and, and teachers and all the rest? Am I waiting for them to do something or am I looking for what God's put in front of me? Now, this is a challenge for all of the church, all of the time. It's especially true if God's given you an area of ministry. Even if we have to remain virtual, there are ways that you can be salt and light. So ask, how can I, as a teacher, reach out to students instead of waiting for them to reach out to me? How can I, as a CG leader, help my CG reach out to people who are drifting away rather than waiting for those people who are drifting away to reach out to us? How am I helping the welcoming team be more welcoming while we're remaining virtual? That's a big challenge. How am I helping the praise team make our virtual services as engaging as they be? What kind of ideas am I bringing? How can I be salt and light to the people around me? Jesus has given us an enormous task. It's one that would be overwhelming if he hadn't given us himself first. But because he has, he took his light and he shone it into your darkness. He took your rot from you and he gave you his health. If he did all of that, he can give you what you need to serve this world now like he served you. This world desperately needs your service, whether it knows it or not. You are the soul of the earth and you're the light of the world. Let's spend some time together in prayer.